Good evening, world. Welcome to another eloquent episode of the best damn pod on the planet, A24 on the Rocks. I'm your host, Kevin Kacon Konachek, and tonight we are dissecting and discussing the 2013 psychological drama film, Locke, written and directed by Stephen Knight, starring the one and only Tom Hardy. And to get the creative juices flowing tonight, I am drinking George Dickel bourbon whiskey, aged eight years, because bourbon is the answer regardless of the question. And joining me once again on this expedition through the entirety of A24's library is... My name's Eric Kiska, uh, and tonight I'm drinking, again, Coppercraft Distillery Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Uh, Up next we have Cole. Hi, my name is Cole William Whitlaw Gibson. Tonight I am drinking Star Ward Twofold Double Grain Australian Whiskey. Shout out to uh, Silas Carson in this film. He uh, voice acts uh, Kit Andy Mundi from Star Wars. So shout out to him. Up next, we got my boy Blaze. Hey, what up? It's Blaze Fitzgerald Ryan the First at your service. Today I was inspired by um, an A24 group member. Um, and so I created my own drink. It's uh, Tom Collins and Twisted Tea, and I call it a Tom Hardy. Um, also, Mr. Silas played Newt Gunray, who is the greatest uh, character of the prequels. Uh, finally, a lady that needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce her anyways, Miss Kelly. Hi, everyone. It's Kelly again. And as you know, I do live with Eric. So many times I drink the same thing that he's drinking. It's Coppercraft, baby. Whiskey bourbon. Mm. Once again, back this week. I'm drinking it not on the rocks. Can I still stay around? Oh, of course. Yeah, you've got the invite. And a special thank you and shout out to all of the cinephiles out there in movie land joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy this discussion. As always, if you haven't watched this movie yet, turn back now. Are there are heavy spoilers to follow. Locke premiered at the 70th Venice Film Festival on September 2nd, 2013. The film had a limited release in the UK and grossed about $5 million worldwide. The film stars Tom Hardy in the title role, the only character seen on screen, as he carries a number of speakerphone conversations with characters voiced by Olivia Coleman, Ruth Wilson, Andrew Scott, Ben Daniels, Tom Holland, and Bill Milner. The film shot during the course of six nights, with three cameras resulting in about 30 hours of raw footage. Locke received critical acclaim, particularly for Hardy's performance, but I know for a fact that this movie isn't everyone's cup of tea. And I'm willing to bet there will be a different opinion amongst this group of movie reviewers as well. So let's cut right to it. As many reviewers of this movie have bluntly stated, you either love it or you think it's a tedious, uneventful, uninspiring, slow waste of 85 minutes. So I guess by the hope at the end of this episode, we'll have to shed some light on what was uh, our thoughts on it and what side of the spectrum we fall. Cole. We're starting with you, buddy. As our resident construction expert and all things concrete, <laughs> I want to know your general first impressions of the film as we descend on this monolithic uh, concrete site and just kind of uh, take it away. Yeah, yeah, definitely monolithic and massive for sure. It's exactly what he said. Uh, I don't know if I agree, but we'll get to that later. Uh, first impressions was uh, I, this is a, the weirdest commercial for a BMW car I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I was going to say like, that. <laughs> Product placement. <laughs> there we this, go. This uh, this was definitely not a Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercial. This was some weird Tom Hardy BMW stuff going on. Uh, slow, slow movie for sure. Definitely uh, lots of talking, lots of product placement, lots of BMW. Um, yeah, I I have a lot of opinions about this film that probably aren't. I, I might fall in the category of this is not my movie. This is not this is not for me. Well, and that's why we're here. Blaze, same question. Do you agree with Cole? What were some of your first themes, reactions in that first fifteen minutes of the movie that you saw? Um I was completely taken aback. Much like last week's movie, I would never even heard of this movie. Um so I didn't know what I was going into getting into it and Gosh, I wish I could say that I love this movie because it really feels like a movie that's right up my alley because it is 
so different in that it only has one person on screen and literally after the opening credits it takes place in one location so to say that i was confused would be an understatement i do think that uh just not the first 15 minutes but through the entire movie i think tom hardy plays a very convincing character um in his uh trials and tribulations and his need to stick to the truth you know i do think there's great resolve in his character and i think he really showed off his acting chops yeah i guess just like last week's movie (laughs) confusion was the uh main theme for me where i'm trying to pick up the pieces but uh decent opening i guess gotcha so as we're sticking with this idea of preconceived notion uh this question is for eric and kelly together uh, did you both go into this movie with this idea of what the movie was going to be about? And did you guys talk about it before you watched the movie on what you thought the movie's premises would be or what your thoughts on the movie might have been? All that Kevin. Eric told me before we started watching it, he had seen it before. All he told me was, this is a kind of movie that you're going to like. And much like Blaze, it's my kind of movie because it's quite different than other movies. But other than that, I didn't know really anything except Tom Hardy, which was thumbs up and Eric's good at knowing my kind of taste so another thumbs up so the expectation was really really high and I always I get my hopes up too high sometimes I still it's still a very fascinating movie though not to say that it wasn't yeah the first time I saw this I found it on Netflix I was going through a little time where I was very obsessed with Tom Hardy so I watched his tv show taboo I re-watched um the Dark Knight Rises, and, you know, I'll just do a little quote here. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man by then. It was bright. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. But you cut off my Scott Steiner promo. I see how it <laughs> So there, right. there you go. That was, that was my, um, you know, impression of this film. All right, so as we um, start this film, we, like I mentioned earlier, descend on this large uh, construction site, and our main character um, enters the the vehicle that we have described. And the first scene, I guess, we have is him driving up to a stop sign and a large truck kind of coming up behind him and honking the horn. Did anyone notice on the first go-through kind of the significance of that scene or did it take anyone else going back and kind of looking at it reanalyzing it to 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 notice that particular scene kelly for me it was one of those things where i didn't think anything of it and then it descended on my brain maybe halfway through the film where i was like oh it's a he was at a crossroads in his life either status quo Mm -hmm. or fuck it i'm gonna blow everything up and be truthful because that's who i am as a person But it wasn't obvious right away, of course. You don't know what's going to even happen. You think there's going to be other people he's going to see through the movie. (laughs) But it it (laughs) reveals itself through the film, and that's something that I always appreciate. Cole, did you notice anything right away in the beginning that made you think the decision was made in that instant, or was that something that you thought the character might have developed or thought about up until that point? I mean, I I really didn't think too much into like the crossroads aspect and like it was a good homage or, or, or what have you uh but you know he was turning left and then the truck pulls up the light turns green he start the truck starts honking rightfully so i mean come on move your fucking bmw you're just sitting <laughs> in a green light and then he flips his blinker to, to you know to turn right and you know veers off and i'm like what is this guy doing i don't i'm, I'm just like i'm confused about what's happening but I, I guess I'm here for it. And then, obviously, once the conversation started rolling, then you kind of realize that instead of taking a left, he takes a right to go, you know, down this this new path, so to speak. Have you guys so, ever uh, done that before? Go where, ahead. Sorry. Uh, have you no. ever done that before where um, somebody beeps at you because you didn't go right away at a red light and then you just sit there and, like, don't move at all? No, because I'm not an asshole. I've done yeah, that a no, times that, because fuck those people. Be- I'm sorry, are you not paying attention? Are you texting you, and driving? Is no, it my if you, fault if you beep within like one second of me sit, sitting at a stoplight, okay. I'm. Uh, you don't deserve within, anything. I would T-bone your Subaru Outback right away. Back. Time out. <laughs> Which I know you we'll drive. This, that <laughs> Honda Accord, back motherfucker. On the road. Pod back on the road. As we have discussed, <laughs> the director is intentionally slowly giving us snippets of the story as we go throughout the film not revealing his hand all the way until the very end 
Kelly, what did you think about the director's tactic in doing that and slowly bringing the viewers in instead of giving us all the details? It seemed like each phone call, another layer got added to the story. Yeah, I definitely appreciated that. I think that at the baseline of any movie, I think the number one thing you got to do is just keep people engaged and keep eyes on the screen before anything else. And I think the way that he unveils that and the anticipation of what phone calls coming next or when the phone rings you kind of feel it yourself like uh who's this going to be or what's going to happen now and where's this conversation going to take us and it does it keeps ramping and ramping you kind of feel his stress i think that it was a a great way to carry us through the story and for me it kept me engaged the whole time i wanted to know what happened next do you think uh eric this one's for you do you think it was important for the director to do that if you're only having one on-screen character and kind of doing a one-man show See, okay, I I uh, wrote down a list of, like, other movies that take place in one room, uh, and there have been several in film history, you know, 12 Angry Men, Saw, uh, Bo Burnham's Inside, Rear Window, and, and so now I, I'm thinking about how this movie compares to those movies, where I think they put themselves at a loss putting it in a car, because with all those other movies, you know, you're kind of, you're able to enter different dimensions within one room, and in this mo- movie particular... You know, it's him scrolling through his contact list. It's a lot of shots of him just in the car with reflections of the streets, you know. And it did put it put the movie at a loss right away by deciding that as your one room. I, I think I just respect the director on taking the challenge, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Blaze, as you were watching this, how long did it take you to kind of determine that this was going to be a one-man band type of show? That this was going to be just, you know, what we saw from Tom Hardy and that was going to be kind of the entirety of it? The first time that I realized was the uh, first time he talked to his boss when they were talking about how he wasn't going to make it for the cement pour because it really felt like up until that point he was just having regular conversations and then... I think that's about, it's probably like 10, 15 minutes in, and you're like, okay, he's not getting out of this car because he's only got one destination, and he hasn't left yet. Again, as someone who did not know anything about this movie outside of Tom Hardy starting it, and I guess Tom Holland, um, <laughs> retrospectively, um, I guess, uh, you know, you thought maybe there would be a scene change between that opening scene and when he talks to his boss, and the... The changes never happens, and you're just like, okay, I gotta get hyper focused on how pretty Tom Hardy is because that's all I'm gonna see for the rest of this movie. <laughs> so for me personally, I kind of uh, got the vibe pretty quickly, mostly thinking because it's an A24 movie, there was probably some experimental sense to it or something that was going to be different. And I figured, all right, this is like you said, once you got that first impression that it was about him in that vehicle, that was kind of gonna be the end all be all. And then we saw where the journey went as it goes down the road there. But as the movie continues, we get introduced to various characters, um, one of them being um, Ivan's foreman, or at least the second-in-command, Donal. I always thought it was Donald, but apparently it's Donal. I thought the same um, thing. Which, <laughs> it's mostly due to, to Tom Hardy's Welsh accent in this particular film, which we will also get into at some point down the line. So, so um, Welsh. But, Cole, this one's for you. As someone who is in charge of people and projects on a work site, did you feel a special connection with the sheer panic in Donald's voice when he finds out that his world is literally about to get turned upside down by Ivan's decision at the last hour. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, that's, like, such a shitty thing to do. Granted, I understand his circumstances after watching the film, so I would understand, but also from, like, that company's perspective, if this is the largest concrete pour in, you know, all of Europe besides the military and nuclear, uh, you have backups. You have, like, alternates, like, even for... Like what I do and what we do, I'm an alternate for all of our projects. So if one of our guys goes down, like, you know, I have a guy going on bereavement this week. So I'm going to be traveling to one of my projects after this uh, to take over for him. Um, you you have backups and you have people that know what to do and are assigned those roles. This movie made it seem like they were doing this like hundred million billion jillion dollar project and they have no backups and Ivan's like the guy. Also, his role was so not defined he kept call he's, he says he's a foreman but he's doing stuff that a quality control personnel or an engineer would do or a superintendent and doing all these other roles that isn't a foreman like a foreman's job is specifically to carry out the actions of the superintendent on such a 
like specific tasks, especially on those large type projects. Like he's in charge of the rebar crew or something like that. And it sounds like he's in charge of the concrete pumping, which is important, but he's going above and beyond what a typical foreman would do. So I just, I have a lot of issues with <laughs> the way they portrayed <laughs> the construction aspect in this film. So initially then, Cole, was your empathy with Ivan or with Donnell in that moment? Who were you feeling with? It was definitely with Donald because it sounds like this guy got thrown into the mix. Now, he probably should be more prepared if he was, like, the next man up type scenario. But, like, they're leaving that – they were already, like, leaving that evening. So I was confused as to why he was, like, you're leaving that night and, you know, he's going to be – I think it was, like, 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. when this thing starts. And they got a pour at, you know, 5.30, 5.45 that next morning. So I don't understand – you know, usually if you're doing that, you're doing like a split shift or something. So that guy should be prepared. He should be the night sh- night crew or something like that. So I still right. felt bad for him, but all in all, it was kind of Kelly, me. roughly the same question. Do you initially feel empathetic towards Locke or the Chicago office and his coworkers? Chicago office. Hmm. I didn't really feel any sympathy <laughs> for any of them because kind of like what Cole is saying, and not that I claim to understand how construction or concrete works at all. Locke's just being like overly vague about things and it's much easier and even the the his bastard is his name in the phone tells him like why didn't you just say that you were sick and things might have been different for him so I think that both of them just seem it seems way too over dramatic for what it could have been and it seems like there should be more people underneath him other than Donald who's freaking out I don't know that I felt much sympathy for either of them I was just like more concerned about the women <laughs> at that point i was like i don't really care so much about the work stuff i just want to know wh- where you're driving and why did you prioritize this and get your shit together guy <laughs> so that leads me into an excellent question then for eric so our initial empathy and our initial thought as we get together with these characters definitely probably changes as the movie goes on as we find out more details and we find out more things about the situation eric do you feel that you related to the character differently in the last 20 minutes of the film than you did in the first 20 minutes of the film? Uh, relate to Locke differently? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I mean, he definitely be- becomes progressively a worse person. Like, you can tell... Uh, well, he made a mistake. You know, he cheated on his wife. You know, you figure that out kind of progressively throughout the film. You uh, figure out, you know, all of these problems he's had that uh, might have led to him doing that. And in the last 20 minutes, I do think it's like, okay... This man's finally becoming, being, like, honest, and he's, um, he's taking over responsibility that his dad never did for him. So, yeah, I, I guess I do feel more empathetic towards him in the last 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, as a character, I, I don't feel super bad for him, because it was much of a creation of his own making, so. Understandable. As the movie progresses, we see our character become more and more frustrated as he realizes life as he knew it will never be the same. Blaze, what were your reaction to Locke's emotional responses throughout this movie? How did Tom Hardy play the angry moments, the sad, or even the happy moments? For example, at the end where he hears his baby cry. Like, let's talk about specifically in this moment Tom Hardy and kind of what he did with the fact that he had a vehicle of just three cameras in an entire movie just looking at him. So his emotional spectrum throughout the entire film or at the end? Yeah, no, I'll, let's go through the entire film. Anytime that you, we saw some emotion from Tom Hardy, I kind of just a, think, an introspective look. I think that he uh, played a man of dignity, um, or at least in his eyes he thought he was a man of dignity. Um, I think he was escaping the past of who his father was, and he wanted to live by the truth. So his emotions reflected, you know, the way he matter-of-factly told his wife that his mistress was having a baby, the matter-of-fact way that he told his mistress that he didn't love her, the matter-of-fact way that, you know, he uh, said, I don't care if I get fired, I'm going to finish this job. Definitely showed almost gross level-headedness through all that, but then, like, you could see the emotions of anger, deep-rooted anger, like, crack through when he was talking to Donald when he you know Donald was like oh I'm drinking soda and he's like no you're not if I hear that you had cider I'm gonna you know kill you basically and then um I thought his emotions were like again where you think of like 
traditional males, right? He was very even-toned with his son, with his wife, with all these people. And then when he was talking to the ghost of his dad, he let loose. And those were my favorite parts of the movie. Honestly, when he, you know, was talking in the third person to his dad about who he he does not want to be him. So you could see... Absolutely. So, exact, so, you know, his dad was clearly an alcoholic. So that's why he hated that Donald was drinking. And then cool. this whole... Um, we can talk about it later, but the whole uh, building is a metaphor for his relationships that were supposed to be concrete and the cracks are showing. So I think he lets his emotions out just a little bit at a time just to keep us reeled in. And then he lets loose on his own. So I, I think right. he did a good job, to be honest. So Absolutely. So a couple things I want to touch on with that response. Uh, when you, Anytime you have someone who is just the sole focus of the movie, right, where he is literally everything that you see, every facial expression, every frown, smile, tear, anger, honk, whatever it may be, is going to play into the entire story of, of the entire film. And I thought that's what I really enjoyed about his particular performance in this. But you touched on his father, and I think that's obviously a very important part of this entire film. It kind of gives us another character development, another side of Ivan Locke that nobody really knew about, especially because we don't get a lot of background on his father. So, Cole, I'm going to ask you directly, uh, what do you think... Ivan's father was like was he in his life at all is he clearly the one who, like he buried him at the end when he died but what do you think the relationship is like when he was alive if you had to surmise well um I don't know if you're calling me out because I have daddy issues but <laughs> no, no I think not uh... at all who doesn't these days come on oh that's why you're a stripper uh... okay <laughs> yeah ah, there we go let's no. go uh no I think uh I I think his dad was very uh was not a part of his life barely at all like i think he was not there when he was born i think his mother basically raised him and i think his father was a drunk and kind of a deadbeat and uh you know probably did construction because that's what we do but you know he, he probably showed up later in his life or whatever tried to reconnect but never never really had that father figure throughout his life um and and obviously has a lot of pent-up aggression and anger towards his dad maybe he passed away before he was able to really tell him how he felt and just kind of uh never has a lot of these um underlying issues that he never dealt with until this car ride and uh you know the scene where he's yelling at his dad i genuinely thought there might be someone in his back seat or his trunk and i was like oh dude this dude just straight up kidnapped his dad this is gonna get crazy never never nah. paid off came to the realization that that is not this kind of movie, not as exciting. Although he does mention that he could break his uh, dad's back, and I think uh, maybe that Tom Hardy or Ivan is actually Bane, but after mm -hmm. the fact, because he did break Batman's back a year earlier in 2012, you so you know maybe there's some uh, connection there. I really think this is all interconnected. This is in the Batman universe, definitely going to Gotham. All right, so clearly his father is kind of a, a driving vehicle theme in this whole movie, right? Without his angst against his father, we really probably don't have the motivation he has to make sure that he's at the birth of his bastard child one way or another. Kelly, what did you think of the director's forced uh, inclusion of a character that we know nothing about other than a man just screaming at nothing? Um, and and when I say that, I mean like someone as critical to the entire theme as this person is. I just felt that it was kind of... An interesting take by the director. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think that that's absolutely critical. Um, until he's like talking to his dad, I was really just kind of like, what would drive you to possibly do this? Because I think before he even talks to his dad, we realize how much he just does not even know this woman. She's not a mistress or anything. When she's like, do you love me? And he's like, I, I don't know you. <laughs> but he puts everything into that future of this baby that he wants to have his name even uh he wants to be there and as cole was just discussing the relationship with his father he had said that i think he said he was 23 before his dad even showed up and then i found it interesting that he really shows how kind of judgmental he can be as a person saying that his dad was everything that he hated he was extremely weak he was wearing these old trainers like a teenager and he was pathetic but at the same time this woman that he ends up impregnating was this sad woman she's no oil painting she's 
I just felt bad for her, but you treated her in a much different way than you are yelling at your father in the back seat that you're imagining. So I think very critical to tie those two things together for the whole film. 100%. It's almost as if he takes every move that his father made and decides to make an opposite reaction to that decision, which drives the entirety of this entire film. Let's get into it a little bit more with his relationship with his wife. I feel like that was a very critical part of this entire film. Um, anytime that Katrina was on the phone, I felt there was a change in the way the conversation happened. When the entire film is about phone calls, they need to be different from each other in order for it to stand out. And this quote that kind of came in the third or fourth phone call from Katrina, I really enjoyed and I want to talk about it a little bit as a group. And it is... And the difference between never and once is the whole world. The difference between never and once is the difference between good and bad. So I guess my question to the group is, is life that black and white? It's time for a philosophical discussion, but is there a middle ground? Or is the idea of once you go down the road, there is no turning back? Finite and absolute. Is one decision enough to damn a person for life, or is there redemption down the end of the road? Eric? You're up first. So I think in this sp particular occasion here, in this particular example, he cheated on his wife and had a kid with someone else. Yeah, that's a mistake he can't come back from. It's it's not very black and white uh, where I think there are varying levels of mistakes you can make that you, know, you can actually apologize for and seek redemption for. But um, in this particular case where he had a kid with someone else, I think that's a mistake. A mistake he probably, uh, and he didn't purposely have a kid with her, obviously, but, uh, you know, like, that's a mistake you can't come back from. And I I completely understand where the wife is coming from, and I, I would probably do the same thing in that situation, you know? Absolutely. Blaze, what do you think? Is um, this a bigger commentary on life in general, or is, should we look at this specific, specifically to the idea of uh, cheating in, in marriage and babies out of wedlock? Well, in the terms of cheating and babies out of wedlock, yes, I think there is an absolute, you cheated or you didn't, you know, there's no, there's no second strike, there's one strike and you're out, you know. But as far as, like, a bigger, grander scheme of the whole movie, I there's probably a, a little bit more validity to a gray area. And I think that it's shown in, you know, the way that Tom Hardy is... I, th I think, again, not to go off on a separate rant, but I think the issue is truth versus lies and how, like maybe being too truthful is almost uh, um, a disadvantage to everyday life because if he just would have told his bosses that he was sick, he wouldn't be fired. You know, if he just would have told his wife six months ago, maybe he wouldn't be in such a, you know, hot water. But the fact that he boiled it down to one night and four different phone calls, he's kind of in the uh, black lagoon of life, I guess. In that particular circumstance, his wife is 100% correct. And I think he buried himself to that point where it is black and white. But I think if you scale it back, if you would have made better life choices, maybe there's some more gray area in his life. But... The way that his wife said it. Do you think, Kelly, this one's for you. Do you think the director is making the audience intentionally feel that there is some sort of exception to this rule of this black and white cheating equals end of family, loss of home? There is no end. Because at one point, his character just goes, Katrina, I just want to know if when this is all over, I can turn around and come home. And it it makes it pretty simple, a pretty black and white description and pretty much straightforward what you're going to make that choice to being. But back to that question. What do you think? I felt like, I first of all, I think there's always gray area. I like what Blaze said about telling the truth almost to a fault. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the director was pretty brutal in that every single thing was worst case scenario over and over and over again until we kind of got to the end of the movie which I have mixed feelings about where we hear a baby crying and hopeful music plays again. But until then, and also when the, when the polls tell him that he's the greatest man in all of England, those are like the two positive points. Other than that, it's just 
down, 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 down for what he says he did one time, one mistake. Um, so I don't know. I felt like it was pretty, pretty tough on the guy, but that can happen. But if that makes sense, if there's anything that can be drawn from all of this. Absolutely. Cole, give us your two cents here, buddy. The one, I think that the biggest problem I had with uh, Ivan and the whole cheating and all that stuff, which is obviously terrible and horrific and, you know, very damaging to a relationship. It's the fact that he never told his wife until mm-hmm. the lady was having the baby, which granted it was two months early, but hell, you had seven months to tell her and you did it, which just like bad news bears for him. Also, when he does tell her, he doesn't even apologize. He just keeps repeating only one time, only one time, only time, only time. Never apologizes for it. Never says sorry. Never like asks for forgiveness during that initial conversation he only does it after he realizes how broken up and upset she is like he just has like almost a disregard for her feelings when he tells her and it's just like hey i have to do this you're gonna accept it and i'm not sorry uh but then like once he realizes after talking to his kids that she's throwing up and like her literally her whole life is falling apart because of him then he's like well, you know, I'm sorry. Can I come home? It's like, yeah. fuck, fuck you, man. Yeah. You're a piece yeah. of shit. So, so there. But that touches on a key point, though. At that one point in the movie, you pretty much said, "Fuck that character. I'm gonna side with the people around him instead of him." Did anyone else have that movie moment while watching it where you're just like, "Nah, I'm not. I'm not on your side anymore. Like, I don't like it." Eric, go ahead. I, well, I don't think he's like a horrible, horrible man. You know, for this, there's. A lot shittier things people have done, especially in the movies we've watched the last seven... seven uh, For sure. For yeah, sure. but, like, yeah, the, the point is he did... It's not that he, you know, just cheated on her. He made... He lied to her for seven months and lied... It's like every time you see her face, that's him lying again because he's not telling her, you know? And he's this, like... He's a very overly practical and overly logical man, and that is why, um, you know, like... He's probably not saying sorry, and he keep, he keep, uh, keeps saying, we need to work on a practical next step. And, yeah, it, you, we all know people in our lives that are just, they're, uh, devo- like, they don't have a lot of emotion, and they're very much about practicality and logic, and that's, like, what drives them at every single turn. And he is very much like that, and it, those people annoy the shit out of me, actually, but, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll go Kelly, and then we'll go Blaze. This is going to be weird because of how Eric just ended that, but I was going to say that I quite liked him because uh, we love a problem solver. We love a logical and practical thinker. I like when he says every problem, you can draw a circle around it and solve it. Like he's practical about that. And it's because I come from, I feel like a line in my family of engineers quite used to people treating problems that way and i find it admirable so the fact that eric just said what he did is hilarious but i i i quite liked that in him there's more to life though there's emotions that you like you have to be allowed to feel things and you have to allow others to feel things so but that's what i think i particularly enjoyed about this movie and i'm sure we'll touch on it but it took a little bit of everything right took the practicality of life when you see a normal situation that a lot of people deal with when you find as being lonely and finding somebody in the whole cheating baby mama thing and finding joy in your work but not at home like it took a lot of themes that we all can kind of relate to in just everyday life and elaborated them on odd ways Blaze, did you have something you wanted to add on that conversation? Oh, yeah. Eric's sleeping on the couch tonight. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no. I, what I was going to say was uh, kind of echoing Kelly is that I do think that he made a lot of bad decisions, but unlike some other characters, Roland, um, <laughs> I, th- I, think, uh, I think he is redeemable. I think he, like, it's chivalry to the exponent you know it's you know he wants to do the right thing Infinity. yeah but the right thing might not be the best thing so i do think once we talk about the ending i will give my thoughts about the ending where i'm gonna Fair. throw a 180 on him but it, from the movie that they showed us is that he is a guy that really wants to do the right thing where he says you know i don't care right. that i'm fired i want this building up and, you know, I don't care that I don't love this woman. My dad wasn't there for me, so I'm going to be there for this child. So, I do so, think he's redeemable. Uh, my my two cents on this before we move on to the next uh, topic is that I think the director did a really good job of making the audience feel a particular way about Ivan's character. 
He's clearly an accomplished, well-thought-of, respected individual. We hear that in the conversations with his boss about how he tried to defend him to Chicago. We hear that in the way his sons clearly feel about him and how his wife is just totally flabbergasted this could possibly even happen. I do think that that the idea of redemption should not be as black and white as one and done. I feel like everything in life has an exception. And maybe that's crazy to think about, but that's also just my personal opinion when it comes to all of it. And I do think that the director led it up to the audience to decide how they were going to appreciate this character. And that, for me, is enough as, as a film watcher to really appreciate something in general. But we've been talking a lot about the actual plot and the actual theme about the movie. Let's talk about the filming, because that also is kind of an interesting part about the whole thing. This movie was filmed over six consecutive nights involving three cameras and a whole pile of footage. The car was pulled on a flatbed as it made its actual trek from Birmingham to London, which coincidentally, or in this case obviously intended, takes the same amount of time as the duration of the film. So, all of you, did you enjoy the director's style? Did you find the cinematography to be inspiring? And what would you have done differently? Eric, you're first. Yeah, it, it was very hard to find any inspiration in the cinematography because, like you just said, it, there was three different camera shots the whole time. Like I said earlier, you know, there's all these other films that you could draw from where it uh, took place in one room, and maybe it's be you know, he put himself at a loss by putting this whole movie in a car. So it's like, yeah, there's not a lot of camera shots or things that you can actually do to... Um, you know, like make the cinematography cinematography more exciting. So I I think it's just because he put himself at a loss that I was not very inspired or excited by uh, any of the camera shots in the film, really. Absolutely. Kelly, same question. I was going to uh, call it a good movie for people who appreciate podcasts. But... <laughs> <laughs> there we go. But uh, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of eye candy on screen. That helps. If you're going to have a movie like this, get a hottie. And they, they nailed that right on the head. Um, but I thought that I like that it was nighttime outside. I found myself not watching with my eyes, but listening more. And I think that that is the whole goal of it. I liked that the when he would tell us how much closer he was to the hospital, it was also an indication of like how much longer of the film is left. Found that interesting. And the use of a there would be certain things that would happen on the road. Uh, when Donald freaks out for the first time, the cops are, start driving by and everything kind of ramps up at that time. So there would be like subtle things right there and everything, but it just wasn't the focus for me. Uh, and I think that it wasn't the focus of the film either. I think it was more about the audio and the story progressing. Absolutely. Blaze and Cole, same questions to both of you guys. Uh, yeah, so 100% agree with Kelly. I watched this film originally on Saturday night and then... I worked from home today and I literally had it on in the background because all I needed to do was hear the voices because the visuals didn't mean anything because it was the same three shots, you know? Um, it's kind of like the uh, Cole William Whitlock Gitson of, you know, movies, you know? It promises a lot and it just kind of fails, you know, as far as visuals oh, go. Oh, come on. Oh. Boo. Uh, no, boo. Strike it from the record. Unnecessary. <laughs> And not true. No, he's beautiful. Not true. He's Cole, beautiful. You're a great human being. He's the, he's the Tom Hardy of people, to be honest. Well, there you uh, go. But yeah, no, like, I don't know. Visually, it was just, it was just so appalling, to be honest. It, like, I get what they're going for. Like, like what Kelly said, it's kind of experimental and it's done with a purpose. And I think especially the people on the speakerphone did phenomenal acting where you can actually like see their faces when they speak but at the end of the day it's lacking as an 88 minute film you know you kind of tune out sometimes because it's the same highway it's the same road it's you know the same shot of tom hardy luckily he's phenomenal looking with that beautiful beard of his I wasn't into the film the way it was shot so it was it was very hard to watch and I'm glad I listened to it because I felt when I listened to it the second time it was a lot better movie all right Cole what do you think cinematography ready go so I'm a big uh cinematography guy and uh I hated it I thought it was all right so just lazy 
boring. And uh, for a movie that cost $2 million, which is very cheap, I I still struggle to find where they spent all of that money because it took six days. They filmed it on a car. They didn't do anything like beyond that. So I don't know. Tom's sal- Tom Hardy's salary. Yeah, Tom Hardy's yeah, salary. Doctor like, was yeah, yeah, Tom Hardy's salary. Well, that's got to be at least 200 G's right there. Well, Cole, I but, appreciate your honesty and straight to the point. Fantastic. So, Kelly, I asked you a similar question when we discussed Bling Ring, and it's surrounded around the idea of the indie art house film and where you thought that movie fell on that spectrum. So I will ask you a similar question here. Is Locke an indie darling experimental film or something to be taken a bit more seriously as a drama piece or a thriller of some sort? Uh, not an indie art house film with this one. I think it's just like a it's a drama thriller. It could just be um, your normal run-of-the-mill kind of blockbuster if we had more characters in it. Um, but it just feels like anybody could appreciate it for what it is. Like I feel like sure. I could show my mom and she would be like, this is cool. But if I showed her something more artsy, experimental, she'd be like, can we, can we turn this off, please? Uh, so I think that it can have a wide appeal and it doesn't have to be super niche, even though it is unique, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. Does anyone else have a particular opinion on that question they want to share? Yeah, well, it wasn't an indie art house film, I agree. You know, sure. like, kind of, the way I think this uh, film would actually work wouldn't be in film. It would be in uh, theater, and uh, I th- I think this is like a one-man play, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And if you would, like, maybe have a whole theater show where it was, like, you know, one person on the stage driving, you know, like, and then it, maybe they, like, uh, they pan over, or you know, you you have lights on different parts of the stage the where all these drops. Yeah, yeah, all these other people are located. Yeah. You know, I Seriously, think that would be though. cool because actually, you know, I gotta say, I love the screenplay here. You know, like uh, there's some pretty cool lines, like you don't trust God when it comes to concrete, and then um, that that one uh, guy that was had to get a permit going or whatever, he was like. I told you I'm at an Indian restaurant. <laughs> you know, that made me literally crack up. So there was a lot of parts of this. Um, also, two words, fuck Chicago. I love fuck that. Fuck Chicago. Yeah, because, fuck you know, Chicago. I'm from Detroit. Fuck Chicago. Um, so either way, <laughs> uh, yes. there are some great lines in here. So, And actually, yeah. the first time, I liked it more than this time because this time it was like, you know, second time watching, there wasn't anything new that I uh, – found in this film which in other films that's why i like it if i watch it a second time i want to find new things that i might not have noticed before but either way uh yeah not an indie art house film in the end so. fair enough blaze go ahead first of all that was the worst line of the movie fuck chicago <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right second of all no this is not an indie art house film it is definitely um someone who thought outside the box and i definitely agree with eric i definitely want to see this on broadway uh, <laughs> i think uh Tom Har- Tom Holland singing uh, about how their football team won would be phenomenal, but as like I don't know I don't know if it was budgetary restraints or what because I, again I'd have to watch this movie again because it doesn't make sense why it took place in one one scene outside of like hey we paid all these people a bunch of money and you know. It's, uh, it's B- a challenge for for them. They wanted to do that to cha- for the challenge. I think you it's know? BMW yeah. days, you know. So was sixty percent <laughs> off uh, APR and the credits. Or... Hell yeah! All right. If you think well, a construction worker. <laughs> right. Exactly. So for my two cents on that question, uh, I agree with all of you. I don't think it's an indie art house film, but I do think it's experimental in the sense that it did exactly what Eric said. It took something that could be easily put onto a stage and tried to put it into a film, taking an A-list Hollywood actor with a whole shit ton of range of emotions and put it into a very small box. But I also feel like that played into the theme of the movie where you had a strong individual who was trying to control the uncontrollable and had to deal with a narrative where he was doing something he should have had in person with all of these individuals and was doing it over the phone and we had to watch it go down. But that's neither here nor there. I hear that someone has an axe to grind when it comes to some construction math. So we're going to move <laughs> into that phase of the podcast where our resident uh, engineer, Cole, is going to wow us with some concerns regarding the math of this movie. So, Cole, take it away. 
Yeah, so uh, I do uh, heavy civil and marine construction. I am an engineer and uh, we do a lot of concrete pours. And I have a real axe to grind with the fact that they keep saying that this is the largest concrete pour in all of Europe that isn't military or nuclear. Which, to be fair, military nuclear does use a lot of concrete. But they mentioned 350 metric tons. That equates to 386 U.S. tons, which is, you know, they, they claim it takes 218 trucks. That's a bunch of bullshit. A fully loaded concrete truck can take 10 yards, which is equivalent of like 20 tons of concrete. So in reality, even with like a 10% surplus, which is what we usually utilize out on the project, you'd only need 21 trucks. So they got like fucking like 200 extra trucks covered for this thing. <laughs> like the amount of concrete they're talking about is fucking nothing. I've poured more more concrete that in like a day than they're talking about with like... <laughs> It blew my mind. It drove me absolutely fucking crazy that they're talking about 350 metric tons. This is like a hundred fucking million dollars. It's a fuck off. There, that is so far from the truth. It hurts. Like to wow. give you a perspective, to give you a, like even more perspective, 386 tons, U.S. tons, equates to roughly 210 cubic yards of concrete. That is only a 25 by 20 by 12 foot slab of concrete. That's nothing. Like, if you're talking about a massive building like skyscraper that he's talking about, you're that's you're you're fucked up. You have <laughs> you guys routed. You need to add a couple zeros to that bad boy. And a pump. They're talking about oh, we got twelve pumps set up. You gotta check them out. I've pumped through one pump truck more more than that has in like four to five hours. Like in half a day, I could pump all of that in one pump, not 12. And they're using a one inch slump for their concrete for their C6 mix. A one inch slump is insane. That is like the stiffest concrete that I've ever seen. You gotta add water to that, especially if you're gonna pump it. You need to have like basically no slump to where when you do a slump cone, <laughs> oh, if you're an ACI certified technician I like I am, you pull it up, it fucking better be wet because when you get it oh, all the way up through the pump, it's gonna be dried out. It's gonna Fantastic. be fantastic. It's fuck Cold. this movie. I hate everything about it. Also, the oh, guy says that he's driving whoa. 90 kilometers an hour because he's speeding. Hey. That's only 56 miles an hour. What kind of fucking highway is that? <laughs> We'll save the reviews for the end, sir. But thank you for the you very You don't trust eloquent. God when it comes to concrete, but you trust Cole. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Blaze, what's your question? What's the bigger plot hole? That or when Eric said that in Spring Breakers, the uh, professor didn't, like, call in his car fast enough? No. We're not bringing up that trash movie. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> Get fucked. Blade. All right, Blaze. I, I will. I will ask math. you a question. I couldn't do my Steiner math promo, but we got to hear that. Blaze. Uh, Blaze, I love you, but I'm gonna ask you a question now. What do you think of Ivan's seemingly obsession with concrete? He describes his building as part of the sky being stolen, and a large portion of his motivation is derived from the need to take care of the concrete. Does this man have an unhealthy obsession with this particular building which you're oh, in? Oh, absolutely. But again, it, go, it, it all goes back to his uh, father, who he wants to be the antithesis of his father. So, you know, where his father left him and didn't finish anything, he wants to finish everything to the end. Um, almost to a fault, as we uh, see in the movie. So, um, yeah, he uh, does have an obsession uh, I think it's justifiable, and I think, like again, like he, he, at least in his motivations, he wants to be chivalrous, but it doesn't uh, pan out for him because he's overly obsessive with everything. Even though he's, you know, he wants to be good, but his goodness kind of turns out bad. As we start moving towards the end of this uh, pod and this episode, we're going to kind of round out a couple of themes, and we've talked about the cinematography a little bit, and we've talked about the direction that the director took. But there were 36 phone calls. 13 of those were outgoing, 21 were incoming, one ignored call, and one went to voicemail. What did you think about the choice of the ringtone, the visual representation of the phone, and would you have changed anything about how the director represented such a critical part of this entire film? Who wants to start? Cole. 
I uh, I think BMW paid a nice premium for them to sh- utilize <laughs> and show how great their multi-touch function was for that phone call. Uh, that's really my big takeaway. Is just again, it's just a big BMW commercial. I like, I get it, but the whole entire time I'm just like, wow, he's touched. Look at that. He's got a little dial down in the yeah. center console to scroll through his all of his contacts and stuff. That's pretty cool. I might have to get myself a BMW. But that's uh, my takeaway. All right, Maybe someone has more uh, more emotion. Nowadays, you just have Siri too. But like that wouldn't have been as cool for. Uh, the film, I guess. Just him continually saying, like, Hey, Siri, call bastard, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> of course. All right, well, did anyone take anything else away from the uh, myriad of phone calls? If All right, Kelly, go ahead. Yeah, I think that it was critical that we could see the screen and the names that he was talking to. Um, yeah. I can't remember really the ringtone didn't necessarily stand out to me but I liked that it wasn't at the beginning of the movie but as it picked up with all the conversations you started to get it like call waiting and that would happen when he's mid conversation and it's like is this another fire he has to put out probably is it just his kid calling to break your heart possibly it adds to the anticipation of what's going to happen next and and then it wasn't until like really near the end that he leaves a voicemail, someone else leaves a voicemail for him to listen to, and the slowing that that then brought to the pacing of the movie I thought was really well um, done as well. So you touched on a little bit there with the small details, um, and this film is an entire film based on those small details. If you don't catch it, or if you miss that moment, it ruins the film or leaves the viewing experience a little bit incomplete. Did any of you watch this while distracted? Or did it get your undivided attention the entire time? Cole, go ahead. Got anything to add on that one? Yeah, I uh, I fell asleep at one point during this movie, so right. <laughs> and, uh, I tried. I wrote, you know, I take lots of notes. This was the I took the least amount of notes for this movie, and uh, I did fall asleep. I rewound it. I, I made sure to watch everything, but uh, it. It, I honestly think this would be a great like. I will put this uh, if I had no. I'm not gonna do it now because I don't particularly care for. It, but I would watch. I would like put this on my phone while I'm driving to work or doing like a commute to a job site or something where I got like an hour and a half or two hours to burn because it is like I, the voice acting is very good, but just like nothing interesting happens on the actual like TV screen. So like a great background stuff going on. Fair. Blaze nailed it. Yeah, if I was on my way to buy BMW, I would probably watch that movie. But other than that. (laughs) That's it. So we're getting to the very end here. And I got last question before we move into our final ratings. Are Ivan's actions selfless or are they selfish? I feel like that's kind of the the down-to-the-earth question that we have to ask ourselves here. Is he doing this for the benefit of the people in his life, his family, the baby mama, the concrete individuals, or is he doing this so he feels better about his decision to raise the child, abandon his family, or vice versa? Blaze, you look like you're ready to answer, so you're up first. I think at the end of the movie, he is selfish, first of all. And that's because... Drumroll, please. He does not end up going to the hospital. He replicates what his dad does. He starts a new life, and this was the biggest out for him. Because when you think about it, when you really think about it, he fucking leaves his family, leaves his job, and then he has the complete out to get out and he's so matter of fact about it the entire movie outside of the time when he chastises his dad and Donald but he wants to start a new life he's done with it he's done with everything he's being super selfish doesn't care about Tom Holland we all should love you Eddie Uh, (laughs) but Tom Hardy takes a left when you know when you're thinking about like screenplays and stuff like that oh if you're making a right decision you'd take a right and he's on a regular street have you ever seen the hospital on a regular street I haven't So they definitely leave the ambiguity open because they purposely want you to know that he left England or Scotland or wherever the fuck he's from, Wales, uh, 
and he started a new life because he didn't want to do it anymore. So you think he All like right. didn't? He just completely fucked off from everyone. Yes. Well, yeah, like he didn't even go to the hospital. Okay, I mean that that's hmm. one way to take All it. All right. Yeah. Well, Eric, what do you think, buddy? I do think that he went to the hospital. Uh, I I think that he was he was gonna pull in right there, and he was gonna see his new baby and. He was gonna have to for you know like deal with all these decisions uh, that he just made and deal with the fallout from all of them. So I yeah I think uh, that's pretty much the end. And uh, I don't think they do a good job uh, where where they ended it. You know like I maybe if it's uh, I, if it's supposed to be open ended, it doesn't really make me care that it's open ended either. So uh, yeah, to to me I don't think it really matters to you know. Absolutely, Kelly. What do you think? To go back to if he is selfish or unselfish, I think that he is sympathetically selfish uh, from beginning to end. He cheated, he lied, he Mm -hmm. lies to his kids, he decides that he's going to keep, well, he decides that he's going to just fuck off on this really important job and then lie to his supervisor at first, put Donald in a situation that don't talk to whatever his name was, Bastard, if he calls you, puts him in a situation where his job's on the line. He doesn't care because his ego tells him that that building needs to get built. He won't ever tell this woman who's in great distress that he even cares for her a little bit because he can't lie. That's more important to him. So I find his decisions the whole time to be a bit egotistical but and selfish, but in a sympathetic way because he's got a lot of daddy issues basically and as far as the ending goes as well i think that like blaze brought up that kind of went through my mind as well as maybe he just gave up on everything but i think he gives a pattern of he does what he says that he's going to and that's what differentiates him from his father so i do think that he goes to the hospital as well but i like the idea that maybe he just is like you know what life's just easier i got no ties to anything and i'm out and i'm gonna go be an alcoholic too um but that's my thoughts. Selfish guy, but in a way that I, I still liked him. Also, I think Kelly brought up a good Fair point enough. in that the baby was, like, strangling itself the same way that his life was strangling him. So, yeah. uh, new birth. Metaphors. Deep. All right, Cole, bring us home. What do you think, buddy? <clears throat> well, as a baby that was born with a umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, I think that Tom Hardy is uh, he falls into like that kind of like philosophical category of, you know, do you do good because of like, you know, God and, and your religion and that like, you know, no one is actually good. They do good because they want to feel good about being good and get acknowledgement for him. And I think he falls into that category, like hardcore where he's not, he's very selfish. I don't like him. I think he's kind of a, a douchebag, but he does all of these things because he like wants people to be like oh my god he's such a good guy like he's gonna be there for his kid but he ignores the fact that he never apologizes to his wife he cheated on her and all that stuff but he's like i'm not gonna be like my dad i'm gonna be better than him (laughs) also i cheated on my wife of 15 years and left my kids and all that stuff and um or with like this concrete and like the construction he's like oh i'm not you know I am abandoning this project because of, you know, poor life choices. (laughs) And I'm going to, but I'm going to be there for you. Even though I'm getting fired, I'm still going to help you guys out and all this stuff. Like, I think he is very selfish, but he, he does it in a way that he can justify it to himself that he is still a good person, which I disagree with. But that's my take. Blaze and Kelly, what you got on this one? can't go first i'll be quick cole i agree with you so much with everything that you just said and i think that that also is something that is shown in the movie if you are just watching it you aren't going to just hear it in the background every single time that he does get a compliment on his character when he calls that uh council member who says like you're the only one who's ever turned in paperwork early his eye he's just like oh, I feel so good. And he does it again when he's the best man in England. And anytime he gets something like that, you can see how much that that's what he drives for the whole time. 100%. And to answer my own question, whether or not I believe he is selfless or selfish, 
I do believe he is very selfish in this circumstance. He only cares about himself and the perception that he feels that he represents against what his father did in comparison. He doesn't care about his wife, his kids, Donald, his boss, Chicago, the thousands of people that are going to be affected by his lack of anything. He just has to make sure that he's at the hospital so he's not as bad as his bastard father. That's a pretty selfish act in the end, and I do not think it redeems his character. But the fact that we're asking the question at all means the movie was worth something. And that's, I guess, what we'll start with. I'm going to go ahead and give my rating because I'm already talking and that makes sense at this point. I think that this movie did a very good job of making me think about the characters involved because there wasn't any action happening outside of Tom Hardy talking. I actually had to take what he was saying at value and pay attention to what was being said. Oftentimes movies are about what is happening on the screen, not the dialogue itself, as opposed to this movie where it was truly about the dialogue. I didn't have to care whether or not I saw flashy lights or any other details. It really, truly made me feel that the story was the most important thing. Whether or not I felt empathetic toward the character or not, it did not matter. It gauged my attention for the entire 85-minute duration, and for that reason alone, I have to give it at least a B24. It wasn't the best movie I've ever seen, it's nor it's the worst. I do want to watch it again, and I will recommend it to my friends because it is so unique and it is a movie that could be easily replicated on stage, and that is awesome. Tom Hardy is fantastic. He's awesome in everything that he does, and it was cool for that sense alone. I'll turn it over to the rest of you, and let's see what you guys have to say. Like I was saying, this is the second time uh, that I saw this movie, and I uh, liked it a lot less this time around. I think the first time um, I was looking at it with, you know, rosy-colored eyes because I liked Tom Hardy so much at that time, but um, either way... Uh, yeah, there was nothing I noticed about this film that, like, I didn't notice in the first watch. There wasn't a lot of depth to this film, you know, and it's very much, it's a story. It's a a one-man show. Uh, I guess the characters, there's some depth to them, you know, but either way, uh, I do think this movie had great acting. Like, I I definitely think Andrew Scott, um, and Olivia Coleman, who went on to win, uh, Oscar, you know, and, uh, Ruth Wilson, like, just using their voice, they portrayed a lot of emotion and I could tell exactly like I could picture them on the other end of that phone and then Tom Hardy of course was fantastic I think in portraying a guy that I guess not a lot of us liked but either way um I think they limited themselves by putting all this movie in a car you know it as in film in the film medium this just did not work uh because you just having three camera shots the whole time you know movies are about escapism and kind of, you know, getting out of your shell in a way. Even even the other movies that I've said that uh, have taken place in one room throughout film history, they do so much more in just kind of entering you into these different dimensions and stories. Um, and so, saying all that, <laughs> there were good parts of this film, there were bad parts of this film on my second watch, and I'm going to give it a C24. Eric, uh, does the fact that uh, this movie basically brought to light taboo changer fact at all because tom hardy only agreed to do this so that way Stephen knight would write taboo for him does that change I your did, rating I, at all i did not know uh know mm-hmm. that but i mean this... it doesn't make it worse or better for me uh, uh. it's cool that you know right after they made taboo because i actually i like that uh i like that tv show but they never made another season of that too so all right, Blaze, give us your rating. Yeah, so I, I really think this is reminiscent to the last one we watched, Under the Skin, in where it was the perfect formula for me to love it. I think it's had a lot of things to say, but where Eric said was completely right. The medium was completely wrong because this film should have been a podcast. It should have been a stage one man stage play i don't think that uh people appreciate how good the storytelling is how good the screenplay is because it it doesn't grab your attention at all you know you really got to be like i'm reviewing this movie so i've got to watch it and i feel like tom hardy did a good job as act as an actor so i'm gonna give it a c Minus 24. All right, fair enough. Who's next? I'll go next. I thought that this film was extremely engaging in contrast to most of you, if not all of you here. 
Kevin, you thought it was a bit engaging, though, but yes, I, I, I definitely I felt um, every single minute I had, as Eric called it, escapism. I was fully invested in the movie. I always wanted to know what was coming next, who was next on the phone, how that conversation was going to go, the character development of not only our only on-screen character, who I feel like we're in the car with, which I feel like the car is a great vehicle to move through this movie with, but... I, I felt very engaged. I felt like I was there with them, and I looked forward to what was next. The story's great. The acting's great. And there's a lot of all the points that I was going to say that I thought were really strong have already been spoken about. Uh, that said, I think that the biggest draw of this movie is rewatchability, uh, which I think should be taken into consideration as well. It's kind of like Eric said he liked it less on the next go. As much as I did enjoy it um, and would recommend it to others, I will probably never watch it again. Because I think it's only fresh that first time. I also thought something that grew on me as things went is how much, this is going to sound rough, but it's not, that Locke's personality and the metaphor of him being concrete and how literal that got in a lot of spots <laughs> was really entertaining. Yeah. And Eric mentioned yeah. some of the really like funny bits of, I'm at an Indian restaurant, <laughs> just like sent me over. Yeah. So all that said, I would rate it higher, but because... I can't appreciate it and have that first watch experience again. I have to give it a B minus 24. All right. Last but not least, our resident a engineer and concrete <laughs> expert, Cole William Willow. Well, ahead, uh, again, as the resident engineer and uh, previous concrete technician, uh, I, uh, I did not really enjoy this movie. I it is, It's weird because it's one of those movies where... I did. I just like. I just didn't like it. But none of the acting, like all of the actors, like Tom Hardy, everybody did a phenomenal job. So it's like a weird thing where I can't just say, "Well, man, the acting was shitty," or like they didn't portray it well. I just felt like they they did a bad job taking a podcast and turning it into a movie, like we've talked about, or like taking a play and turn or one man play and turning it into a movie. Like it just did. It doesn't belong in this medium, in my opinion. And the visuals were very underwhelming it was just the same stuff and it just overall i you know obviously i showed <laughs> i had a lot of problems with a lot of the things he was saying which really pulled me out of it from the get-go i mean from even from the start where he's like hopping in his car wearing his safety vest his hard hat and his earmuffs and i'm like dude take your hard hat off you're inside the car like i don't even do that like i wear a hard hat every freaking day when i'm outside but I take it off because I don't want to look like a Neanderthal sitting in my truck with a hard hat on because all the guys will bust my balls because they'll be like, oh, wow, you're really double safe in there, buddy. It's like, okay, I gotcha. But um, <laughs> I'm going to give this thing two ratings. I'm going to give it the film rating. I'm going to give it a D24 because uh, I just I just don't think it I, – I, I won't recommend it to someone. I think it's – I think it's a better podcast, and that's what I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a B24 as a podcast. It's not like a Bear Brooks or anything. Uh, shout out NPR, but it is still like it's a fun story. It's a very engaging story, and they all do like a very good job with acting. So I think if you just listen to it on a car ride, you'll breeze through that hour and a half drive for sure. But I just I can't do it as a film. Well, everyone, thank you so much for your opinions and the discussion. Does everyone have anything else before we end this thing? If not, good night, world. Thanks for hanging out with us. Fuck we'll Chicago. And fuck <laughs> Chicago.